Hi, I'm Adam Beaumont, founder and director of With Purpose Consulting. Come to you from Melbourne. I'm a strategist, facilitator and regulatory consultant who works with executives, leadership teams and boards to be more effective, more successful and achieve better outcomes for them and their organisations. I want to welcome you to my podcast where we have insightful discussions with prominent experts in the area of strategy, leadership, operation and tactical planning and regulation. If you had said to me 20 years ago that I'd find regulation interesting, I would have thought that you were genuinely mad. But regulation, as it turns out, is quite an amazing insight into how people think and how they behave, into how incentives are structured and how you get people and organisations to do the right thing, whether that's in banking or environmental management or, or healthcare. But over the years, these concepts of nanny state and regulatory burden or government bureaucracy have put a focus on regulation as a handbrake on the economy. And whilst regulation provides protections, it's seen as this blunt instrument that can't adapt, can't evolve, and can't keep pace with what consumers and business expect. So today, we want to talk about regulation as a dead weight on the economy, about concepts of red tape and burden, and how those concepts have been heard by the people whose job it is to apply the law, the regulator. Even if you know nothing about regulation, this is very much about how you change behaviours and how the laws that apply to all of us are applied. To help us in this discussion, I'm joined by Chris Webb. Chris Webb is a seasoned and experienced regulator. He's worked in health and safety and environmental protection, in building safety, and he's one of the few people who've actually let out the design and the implementation of modern environmental protection legislation. Chris has had many roles in the private sector around risk and strategy, he was the Director of Construction and Utilities at WorkSafe Victoria and is currently the Executive Director of Regulatory Practice and Strategy at EPA Victoria. So he's well-placed to talk on the topic. Chris, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Adam. It's nice to be uh, in a conversation with another rig nerd. <laughs> There's not that many of us around, it would appear. <laughs> Hopefully there's a few listening. Um this concept of, you know, red tape and, and burden, you know, is regulation a burden or a benefit? Look, I think, um, you know, well-executed regulation is a huge benefit. Um, yeah, the reason that regulations are created is normally to correct something that's going wrong either, you know, in society or in an economy. You know, something's not working the way that was intended and, and bad things are happening. And the idea then is you intervene uh, with some form of rules, and then somebody executes that executes those rules and manages that risk, and hopefully removes um, yeah, that risk of, of something going bad. And so, it, the intent of regulation is always uh, to, to help and, and unburden systems. However, badly executed, even the best uh, regulatory frameworks poorly executed create an unnecessary burden, and that's you know become branded as as red tape over the years. I think. In a sense, the, the red tapey bit, it normally refers to badly designed uh, legislation, but I think equally it, it, it's poorly executed that's as big a burden, if not a bigger one, than simply you know, poorly designed or excessive regulation. This concept of you know red tape is always equaling a bad thing. Like, is red tape inherently bad? Well, I think by virtue of the definition, you know, red tape is seen as a, um, a bad thing, but I, I think it's when we equate 
red tape to, you know, red tape equals regulate, all regulations are red tape. I think when it's overly simplified or dumbed down and you end up with, you know, you look in, in some states in years gone by where the exercise was things like, you know, we're going to lose for every page we add, we're going to take 10 out. Uh, and that's seen as, as a good thing. But it very much depends on which 10 pages. Well, and there was a fantastic photo. I saw a tweet that um, came out of the Trump administration that showed a picture of a blue ute <laughs> and a red ute. And they had this crane in the back and they were lifting out the equivalent weight, which was the amount of red tape they'd removed. So I think, I think for the average person, they would equate red tape as equaling regulational requirement. So what for you then makes red tape good or bad? Well, I think if you, you know, if you genuinely look at um, those pieces of regulation, they're either, you know, they've either served their purpose and they're no longer needed uh, or you know, they, were, they were excessive in the first place or they didn't really address the problem effectively. That's all red tape and absolutely there should be a push to remove um, those rules. But if, they, if they're there and they're doing the job they were meant to and they're affording the protections that they're supposed to, then then no, that's not shouldn't be seen as a burden. They should be seen as a benefit. Most of these things, particularly now, the principles and rules uh, that are, that are uh, if you like, the, that are the filter during the, the development of, of legislation these days are really, really uh, targeted at making sure that it's necessary, it's minimal, uh, you know, that, that there are no other alternatives. So there's, you know, there's anything that gets put in place these days has actually gone through quite a considered process to not be a, you know, an unnecessary burden. Um, but you then have to execute them appropriately because you, know, you can still create headaches. So this, you know, it's this, so there is this sort of inbuilt theory that, you know, when they started putting in place these hurdles or jumps to put in place good regulation, then in theory we've weeded out stuff that's unnecessary. But there's a lot of statutes still on the books that may not have gone through that same process or it was rushed through. So what's the role of the regulator in, you know, influencing, impacting, reducing um, red tape? Yeah, well, look, I think, I mean, one of the, one of the key uh, things I think every regulator should take a degree of responsibility for is that, you know, when you set those, I'll just call them rules, when you set those rules up, um, the idea is they're there to deal with the harm. And the regulator's job should be, not just simply to, you know, administer those, churn through those laws every day of the week and, and you know, throughout the years. It's You're there to try and stop the problem and remove the problem. Through 10-year reviews and things of regulations, the idea is saying, well, have we still got a problem? Because the regulator should be really creating the situation where those regs are no longer needed. Um, but I think over time, these things just tend to evolve and just hang around and they get added to more than anything else because mm -hmm. oh, the problem's still not going away. Let's add some more rules to it. And, um, and so the, there's no real drive for the regulator to try and ultimately fix the problem. There's a great example of this. When I was in the UK a few years ago. Um, I think I was in the Isle of Wight and I was talking to a local council officer. He'd been doing it for years and shared some great pearls of wisdom with me. But his one story was about... Uh, in the UK back in the early 80s. Um, there was a very popular TV show, um, similar format. You've seen them, a bunch of people on a stage, hypnotist, uh, and within sort of five minutes he's got people clucking like chickens and taking their clothes off. Um, and within months in the UK there were posters going up everywhere for people having you know, hypnotherapists who were going to stop you smoking and do various things. But there was an enormous panic that half the people in the UK would end up sort of walking the streets clucking like chickens. <laughs> Uh, and so they decided they had to have a permit for it. 
Uh, and he said, here we are, 40 years later, that whole thing was just a storm in a teacup, but I still have to do permits for anybody who wants to be a hypnotist today. I've never taken one off anybody, never said no to somebody. A completely useless piece. Now, the regulator's job there is to go problem fixed, never a problem in the first place, whatever it is, let's remove this from the books. Um, but it really happens without, you know, without significant pressure. It's not, it's kind of, I'm not sure regulators see it as their job. Uh, often regulators are told to stay out of the, the rulemaking bit and just do the administration. Yeah. But I think that's, you know, regulators need to see that it's actually part of their responsibility to make the case that these rules are no longer needed. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the experience I've had is that, you know, a lot of regulators will go, look, we're just going to deprioritize that. We're not going to spend any time. We're not going to spend any effort on that because we think that that harm is no longer present and it's not a good investment in time. But what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, ideally you'd actually go back to the mothership, back to the department, back to the responsible standards setter and go, look, we actually don't need this anymore. You should get rid of this. Then let's say the regulator does that. What happens to the other bits? You know, I've heard you talk about this notion of beige tape or grey tape. Um, how is that different to red tape? Well, so this is, I guess, the case where, you know, uh, um, if you design a, a bad piece of legislation, and this does happen, um, a good regulator can still try and deal with the harm uh, by using really good regulatory practice. Um, but conversely, you can give a great piece of legislation and you can make a mess of the, the execution of it, you know, execute it without really understanding its purpose, um, you know, fall into patterns and, and sort of, you know, you've got three-month uh, statutory timelines to do things that so you then always take three months. Lazy regulation. And you lead basically leads to a similar burden just through bad regulatory practice, uh, and so that beige tape. And, and it is, you know, I think most regulators, when you you get someone like the Ombudsman or Vago, uh, a lot of the inquiries, a lot of the findings that they're having, it's not the problem's not with the rules. The problem is with the way the rules are being administered, and that's the yeah. beige tape piece. And it's really hard to to unless you really go in looking for it. It's a bit hard to. It's a bit indistinct, which is why I kind of like I always call it base tape because it's a, you can't quite see it. Yeah, and it's interesting too because because that also you know the, the this concept of base tape also implies that those parts of government who you know assess red tape or the the weight of regulation and the impact on business or people often aren't always that familiar with the concept of regulatory practice or the idea that the regulator has a huge role in changing the regulatory experience of business and individuals and how they apply the law. Um, it's much easier to take out the number of pages and the number of requirements. How do you have a conversation with government around this concept of, of beige tape? Yeah, look, it's a really, it's a really tricky one because uh, I think any regulator who wants to stand up and point to beige tape, they're effectively pointing at their own practices. Uh, and so you've got to say, and, and, you know, it's much more attractive to say, oh, look, the rules aren't working very well. I need to have some more rules and, and grow my legislation or I need some, you know, some more people um, to, to throw at the problem. So I, I think, you know, fessing up that maybe you're not running a particularly efficient system uh, is obviously not an attractive option. Uh, and, and I think that, um, you know, where you can start to uh, influence it, though, is to start to have headline measures for regulators that are that will indicate in inefficient regulation or misdirected regulation, things that don't necessarily, uh, you know, I think it's hard to quantify those things, but I think you can certainly have 
frameworks that start to point to, uh, you know, the, the various sort of shades of, of beige mm. tape. So things like excessive use uh, of uh, sanctions, for example, um, you know, parking fines, great example. We're off, but anything when when people are saying things are done for revenue raising purposes. Um, excessive use of sanctions and fines without any discernible improvement in the behaviour, they're the sorts of things you want to go and look at. So hang on, you're finding lots of people, but it keeps happening. So the, the, the fines are meant to dissuade people from doing it and yet everyone's still doing it. Maybe the, 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 the fines or the number of those sanctions is not actually the approach that's needed. Maybe Yeah, and it's interesting because in that scenario, you know, there's a lot of regulators I engage with or, you know, see or read reviews of where the connection between their activity and the regulatory outcomes they're aspiring to isn't overtly strong. So they're doing a heap of activity, but it's not necessarily translating to the outcomes that, you know, they were originally put there to get. From a beige versus red tape perspective, what is easier to measure and track? Like you as, you know, sitting as a regulator, which one are you going to put your focus on? Attempts to try and tackle red tape. They've been going on for well, you know, 10, 15 years, I think, you know, early 2000s in the UK, and it's kind of started in earnest um, in early 2000s in Australia. Uh, the, the early years, I think, had some great rewards. I think they really did pull up some serious um, uh, examples of where there was clearly excessive regulation and there was excessive burden going on. Um, but then that cycled year after year, and I think you're seeing diminished return on the focus on red tape. And so I really think most regulators uh, now will get far greater reward, you know, bang for their buck if they focus on their own inefficient practices or, uh, you know, it's because it's not always inefficiency. That's probably a bit unfair. It's, it's also just about administering laws that you maybe forgotten exactly what they were putting in place mm-hmm. for in, the, in, yeah. in, in the first instance, uh, you know, or not understanding the suite of tools and how to use them in the right proportions to get the outcomes. There's a range of different ways it manifests. Um, but I, I do think it's, you know, the red tape stuff, there is still still an important uh, thing to protect against. But I reckon all the easy stuff's been done. This is Adam Beaumont and you're listening to Conversations with Purpose. My guest today is Chris Webb and we're talking about regulation, red tape and regulators. I was working in a business department of government and they had a whole series of people who would go out and talk to businesses routinely and with some you know, high level of frequency and they'd capture insights about what businesses were saying. And the team I was responsible for was reporting to the red tape commissioner that had been set up. Um, and the focus was very much on reducing regulation and reducing the lines of regulation. Whereas a lot of the conversation uh, the team and I ended up having was this pivot towards, well, actually, let's think about fewer unreasonable regulatory experiences and let's look at the insights from business to work out where the impact of the regulator is unreasonable and let's go talk to the regulator about it rather than saying, oh, well, we need to strip this pieces out of the, you know, the legislation. I had a mixed experience with regulators and having that conversation. It helped being a regulator. But for you, how have you had that conversation in the regulators you've worked with about actually it might be how we're applying the law that's creating more of a challenge than we think? Yeah, well, I think I mean, the, the best, I guess, indicator is if you ask the question of the regulator, what, why exactly have we got this bit of the law? What's it there for? What was it there to do? Uh, and what's the problem it was trying to solve? And if you can't get an answer to that, 
then that's a good place to start digging. So, for example, uh, you look at permissioning frameworks, a lot of regulators have you know, licensing or registrations or whatever they might have, those permissions. Um, but when you probe and say, well, what, what was the, what's the purpose of, uh, of the licence? And, and the answer you'll often get is something along the lines of, oh, you know, it gives us something to regulate against. So, okay, yes, that's correct. That are, that's the nature of those frameworks. But why is it the right solution to this problem? And, and quite often you'll get a bit of a blank stare. And I think that we, same with notices or sanctions, understanding what a sanction is for uh, yeah, helps you apply it in the right places. If you don't really understand the purpose of a sanction, then you're likely to just go and start using it all over the place to do things that it's never designed to do or drive behaviours that it's not that it's not there for um, sanctioning lots of well-intended stupid people um, is not really helping because that it's really meant to deter the people who are doing things you know consciously. Yeah, it's interesting this notion of regulatory craftsmanship. You know, using the right tool for the right circumstances to get the right outcome. I reflect on you know a friend of mine who's a builder. And he, nothing he dislikes more than is just doing jobs where you're standing up frames, you know, so standing up a house frame. You know, he likes the nuance of using a whole lot of different tools to craft, you know, a bookcase or a cupboard or cabinetry. Like this standing up frames and just using nail guns, he finds inherently boring. Um, how much does the craftsmanship of the regulator, you know, just issuing fines, our equivalent to standing up the frame versus using a whole suite of tools to create this beautiful product, how much are we suffering from beige tape because we've got some regulators who just like standing up frames? Yeah, look, and I think, I mean, this is kind of such a multifaceted question because framework can still achieve great things if you've got an innovative regulator who, who really understands the you know, all of the other things you can bring to bear to, to change behaviours, you know, communication engagement being such a powerful um, piece that's not legislated and so you can use it quite freely. Um, but the, uh, the, the downside is when you get regulations that are designed by people who, who don't necessarily understand the, 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 that regulatory practice, that it doesn't necessarily give them the right toolkit and you do end up with very mono, you know, very simplistic legislative frameworks that kind of do limit the the the, um, the great practice. Um, or alternatively, you get a lot of great tools, but you never use any of them. Uh, and so I think that that lack of understanding of, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the different ways you can, as you say, sort of piece together different instruments to get different sorts of outcomes uh, is, it's just such an important part of being a good regulator, but it really helps if you've got legislation that's designed and is flexible uh, and has that toolbox in it rather than just a couple of tools. You've actually got a good toolbox you can draw on. That's what um, really helps. And I think, um, you know, some of the more modern legislation is starting to pick that up. But this, this divide between the people who write the regs and the regulator, we have to learn how to be mature and bring them together and let the regulators help design the legislation so that it gives them the flexibility they need to be great regulators because, you know. So, so you've been involved in that process of bringing the regulatory craft back to the standard setter and, and getting them to understand not just how it's written but how it's applied and the nuance of that. In having those conversations, did did you find yourself um, constantly going back to this notion of what's the outcome you're after, what's the tool you're applying? Like what was the common conversation that you end up having in those circumstances? 
Yeah, look, it was, interestingly, we were, a lot of the conversation started off with what's the problem we're trying to solve here? Yeah. Uh, and being really clear as your first point about, well, what's the nature of the issue? And then you go to, so what's what's the sort of balance between you know, rule maker and, and ultimately duty holder in this circumstance and where is that balance, right? And quite often, and I know, you know, there's a fine line you tread as the regulator that you, you can't be seen to be having, you know, you can't have the pen and write your own rule book because there's an inherent unfairness in that. But I've, you know, I honestly say we, I spent a fair amount of time arguing for less power in the legislation rather than more because I thought, you know, there were certain aspects of as we were going through developing the work where uh, it was probably weighted too far in the favour of the regulator and against business and, and really trying to make sure that it's developed objectively uh, so that it creates that right balance. You know, the regulator needs to have enough power to, to correct the issues but it can't be an you can't level a playing field if if uh, if you've if the legislation stacks it in the favour of the regulator because you're then trying to regulate from a non-level playing field. So you kind of need to be uh, you know take your regulator hat off and give that advice you know from more from that that um, practical theoretical background. So this is this is the mix of tools we need if you want us to fix that problem. Yeah, it's interesting. So this notion of red tape is very much based on the written law and seldom goes into how it's actually applied by the regulator. You know, so regulation doesn't have to be a dead weight on the economy. If anything, bringing the regulator into the fold, into the conversation conversation without handing them the pen is more likely to get more effective regulation. Yeah, I think so. And, and look, I mean, I think the other thing is just to consider the other uh, yeah, there's n- numerous instances, and I think the, the call was made with the Environment Protection Act that it was 40-odd years old. Um, sometimes it's it's the roots of the legislation, particularly when the, you know, if you've got a bit of legislation that's 20, 30 or more years old, or it's, um, yeah, it might be newer than that, but it's it's basically a cut and paste from a previous regulatory model. You know, that you need to um, make sure that you're, you're not just trying to, um, you know, build on an out-of-date idea. So a great example of this is things like the, you know, the way around Australia building, a lot of the building legislation is structured derives from, uh, I can't think what it was called now, it's the Uniform Design Regulations, so whatever, anyway, 1942, uh, yeah, there used to be a builder and then there was a, a bloke who signed it off. And that was, so the, most of the law was structured around the concept of a builder and a bloke who's going to sign it off. Um, fast forward, what is it now, yeah, 80 odd years, fundamentally it's still the structure of the uh, of, of the legislation right around the country, and then to be honest, you know, most of the world still structures it this way. But the markets move way beyond that. You know, it's very rare that you just have those two entities anymore. There's mm-hmm. twenty different people involved, none of whom have any obligations because we've, we've, we're still holding on to this structure from a different era. Uh, and, and you know, I think you've got to bring your legislation has to reflect the market you're trying to intervene in. Um, and so sometimes it's simply just your, you know, your whole legislative model is out of date. That's, and that's almost an argument for greater flexibility, isn't it? Like building a regime that's principle-based or duty-based or? Yeah, well, I think that's why the, I mean, the duties model appeals in certain circumstances um, where, there's, where there's multiple competing obligations or multiple competing interests that have different obligations um, and you know, different motivations. Duties models are really useful because it kind of helps you. You can be quite specific and say, right, you got you, this group over here this is your motivation, therefore the intervention we'll put around this is different to this 
group who's got a different set of motivations uh, and are giving rise to a different set of problems will have a different set. Of, so you can start to segment the market. Now, it's, it's not, um, you know, there are other issues where uh, you've got, um, you know, the inherent or, or residual risks that are too high, things that won't be socially acceptable, uh, and you can't allow the market to correct them, you know, with some just some obligations. That's what your permissioning systems are for. That's mm. where you say, no, look, you're actually an unacceptable level of risk. We're just going to tell you what to do. But all you people over here, we're going to let you manage it, but we'll give you some boundaries for that. And so it's really just understanding what what, what are the different uh, options depending on the nature of the, you know, the intervention you're trying to make. So the average person who doesn't really understand regulation or regulatory practice, what is a what is a duty model? What does that look like? What's what would be their experience of one? So a duty model basically it's where the the the, the, the form of the legislation just says this you know person, this legal entity, this business has an obligation to do these things. And, and so in the OHS framing, it's uh, to ensure that the employees. Uh, health and safety is protected as far as reasonably practicable. So it kind of puts a bit of a cap on it. It says you can't just have to do everything, everything, but you need to do some reasonable things to make sure your people don't get hurt. And so similarly, the the way that the uh, that the, the new Environment Protection Act has been framed is a similar thing. It says a, a you know, business um, has to take all reasonable steps to ensure that, you know, that they're preventing uh, impacts to the environment. So there's a series of risks that a business has and their job is to understand the risks and to make sure those risks are being controlled and as far as reasonable um, it's it's preventing harm to the environment so it really just makes there's a common law it's it's almost like the common law version of sort of negligence Uh, it says you've got to you've got to try hard not to do something and that but it's it's articulating it really clearly Um, and you know there's multiple instances I think where these that approach has really evolved from the early 70s and really evolved into an OHS framing. I think the, the New Environment Protection Act, the, there's kind of a few examples where the concept was tried. Was tried they tried to bolt it onto the existing legislation, but this is the first time it sort of sits at the heart of an environment protection model. So um, big, big change in the next few years, um, but I think ultimately one that creates a far bit of balance and, and moves us into a space where the old legislation really focused on the problem at the time you know, was a thousand odd businesses doing large amounts of point source harm, and and through forty odd years, that's now down at a level where it's uh, you know so I think still a journey to go, but there's a much bigger part of the pie that is now ten thousand little buckets of harm happening all over the yeah, place. Yeah, diffuse uh, source pollution. Yeah, it, it's interesting because that that general duty model also you know comes with it a greater obligation on the regulator to make sure that the way they're applying the law and using those powers doesn't become overtly restrictive, doesn't become a dead weight. So it's almost like red tape in this instance is maybe less relevant. It's more beige tape with a general duty model. Yeah, very much so. And it does put a a big responsibility uh, on the regulator to um, behave you know, in, in a proportionate manner. Uh, and so, you know, some of the checks and balances you put in there then is a much more robust uh, internal review, statutory internal review process. Uh, we've, you know, there's more, a greater number of parts of the Act that are now reviewable by the VCAT or the Supreme Court. So you kind of say, well, you're giving me some more power, but there's a whole host of things that that, that, will, that are there for both you know, citizens or for the uh, duty holders or government or anybody to hold the regulator to account. So you can't just have unfettered, um, 
uh, ability to sort of draw, you know, set a bar wherever you want to set it. Everything's qualified by reasonably reasonable this or you know the reasonable endeavor that. so there's there's all these concepts that kind of keep a, a bit of a handbrake on it um but ultimately and the ohs model shows this you're relying on good businesses um who, who take this stuff seriously to help set the bar and get a you know and be protected from being undermined in in in, in you know, driving improvement in environmental protection legislation's there to sort of benefit them and allows the regulator to kind of <laughs> Uh, I guess, go to the other end of the market, the ones who need to hurry up and sort of push them along. And that's really the way it should work. So the regulation becomes effectively part of those bits of the economy that you're, you're regulating in. It becomes really a, a, an important component to, to support and protect the good performance. So regulation doesn't need to be a dead weight on the economy. And whilst red tape is a good basis for thinking about you know, what obligations you really want for people and organisations, you know, what you want them to meet, how the regulator applies the law, can significantly impact the experience of individuals and business. So if you want to make regulation more effective, you can't just look at the law, you need to look at the regulators that are applying the law. And it seems a good regulator can be the difference between a good regime and a particularly bad one. Chris Webb, absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Um, Good luck and uh, thanks for your insights. Yeah, great to support. This is a fantastic idea. This is Adam Beaumont. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Purpose. Please subscribe. And if you like more information, visit my website at witpurpose.consulting. Thanks.